Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, January the 6th. We're back in California, uh, or at least on the west coast of the United States. Yesterday, we were in Japan doing lots of traveling around, talking to the the great Japanese Californian writer Pico Aya has a new book out called Half Known Life. Um, it's a kind of memoir about himself. What we do know about Pico is even though he lives half the year in California, half the year in Japan, and he's one of the world's great travelers, uh, there's only one Pico Aya, uh, and we all know who he is. He's a best selling writer. Today, we're talking to another best-selling writer, but I'm not entirely sure who she is. You may know her as Amanda Quick. You may know her as Jane Castle, or you may know her as Jane Ann Krentz. In any event, she is a best-selling writer. Uh, in fact, 35 million copies of her novels uh, are in print, which is pretty amazing. Um, and in fact, those three names, uh, she's also uh, written under four other different pseudonyms. So I'm thrilled that uh, Jane Ann Krentz is joining us, although I want to make sure, Jane, that you are Jane Ann Krentz and not Amanda Quick or Jane Castle. How do you, uh, how do you manage to keep up with all your identities? I've shared a few along the way. And if there are any aspiring writers out there who are looking for a tip, don't do what I did. <laughs> do not acquire a lot of pen names. It kind of happened to me because I've been in the business, I guess, so long. But I'm telling you right now, it is not the way to go. Stop, save yourselves, pick a name. And the reason I don't recommend it, everybody says, well, it's a great idea because under each name, I can do a different kind of book. And that's true. But you will have to build three brands. And that is almost impossible to do anymore. So I do not recommend pen names for what that's worth. Tip of the day. Well, I think it's an important tip. Uh, you're here under your... I, I, is it fair to say that this is your number one brand, Jane Ann Krentz? I mean, that's your name, isn't it? Yes, that's it. So we've got the real Jane here with a <laughs> Y. Um, and you have a new book out. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be a bestseller like all your other books or like most of your other books, Sleep No More. Uh, before we get to Sleep No More, though, just explain how you divide the different brands. Um, Amanda Quick, for example, focuses on historical romance, right? Is that fair? Yes, the, that is the one advantage of having the three names. When readers pick up one of my books, they know which of my worlds they're going to be entering. And if it's under the name Amanda Quick, it'll be a historical setting, currently the 1930s. And if it's under Jane Castle, it's going to be a futuristic setting. And that actually happens to be my birth name. I mean, two of these names are actually me. Um, and then under Jane Ann Krentz, I write contemporary romantic suspense. I should emphasize I write romantic suspense in, under all three names. It's the fictional landscapes that change. So explain what romantic suspense is is there more suspense or more, or more romance or is the key somehow balancing them so there's both romance and suspense it is 
I would say the defining characteristic of romantic suspense, as opposed to suspense with a love interest on the side or a romance with a little suspense on the side, the key to romantic suspense is that every twist in the plot must generate a twist in the relationship and vice versa. They work in lockstep. And that's the defining element of romantic suspense. It's the mystery must be solved along with whatever the relationship problems. And they have to be, both elements have to be resolved in order to achieve closure for the book, to, to achieve the ending. So it is its own thing. It's its own genre. And like most genres, if you read it, you know it when you see it. Well, Kirkus loved the book. They called it a richly layered mystery. Does um, d does this kind of book, does it require many layers like a cake? Well, you are plotting several different things at the same time. I don't know that it's like a cake particularly. <laughs> I haven't thought of it like that one. Um, well, I you, think of a cake as layered. I mean, I guess not all yeah, I think it more of interwoven. The um, elements of the romance it affect how the plot will be resolved, the, the mystery, how it will be resolved and vice versa. So I think of it as more of a, a weaving together process. But you are plotting a relationship that has as many problems as the mystery that you're plotting. And you have to solve both of those sets of problems. And I think that's what makes it unique. Jane, before we went live, you said you're thrilled to be on all these podcasts. And a podcaster is one of the central characters in Sleep No More, to, to, to quote one of our reviews. A man who suspects he witnessed the murder asks a podcaster for help solving the crime. What is it about podcasters that are making them central characters now in a, in a Jane and Krentz bestseller? I realized as I was writing this that the podcast especially the podcasts that focus on um, like cold case crimes, you know, and old trying to resolve old crimes and stuff combines two elements that are just perfect for my kind of plotting. And that is because I always use the amateur sleuth. My people are not professional investigators. They're not FBI. They're not cops. They're not CIA. Um, they may have some background in that world, but they are essentially solving the crime on their own, the amateur sleuth, the classic amateur sleuth, um, as I think you could say it goes back to Sherlock Holmes. And was he an amateur though? I mean, he didn't he earn money? <laughs> well, in that sense, yes. Uh, by amateur sleuth, I mean somebody untrained in the. It, there's no forensics, for example. Okay. <laughs> I don't have to. Put, I don't have to plot with that. I don't have to go through the police procedural steps, because these crimes are going to be solved intuition and observation and in the end it'll be our heroes and heroines up against the bad guys not the cops coming to the rescue if you see what i mean and that's what i mean by amateur sleuth that may be the wrong term but um, it, it, it implies that these characters are on their own for whatever reason uh, on your website, you have a, a feature about what Jane is reading. You're obviously very well read in crime fiction. Do you have a, a favorite non-Jane Ann Krentz, amateur sleuth, who, who inspired you? Who would you like to emulate? Who do you think you could never beat as an amateur sleuth? <laughs> I, 
Well, I, I don't have any sense that I write better than anybody else. So that's no, not I, I, it's not a lead. I didn't mean it in that sense. Yeah. I, I think I think every writer has their own voice. And I go to every different writer for different reasons. I know two people go into a book the same way. No two people take the same thing out of a book. Um, I admire the plotting of um, my friend Christina Dodd, for example, who writes her latest book, Point Last Scene, uh, is an amnesia thriller. You know, that's a that's a great option for a, a plot if somebody's out there looking for one. People love the amnesia stories, and I also love the kind of writing that um, uh, Poby is doing. House or uh, City of City of Windows for example. And I could, you know, list others, but there's no one that I'm trying to be like, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Everybody has their strengths. And, and I think every writer has to discover his or her own strengths and hone their own voice and find their own core plot. And every writer's core plot is unique to that writer and it is the source of their power. So it'd be hard for me to borrow somebody else's core plot yeah, because I wouldn't be able to pull it off. Jane, we've done a number of shows on real life crime. We did one with Joe Pompeo, has an interesting new book out, Blood and Ink, about a 1922 murder. Then another one about a, a Californian crime, Deborah Holt Larkin's um, A Lovely Girl about the nightmare mother-in-law. When you do your research for your books, do you fictionalize real crime or do you just do these these events these crimes these narratives come out of your head pretty much out of my head uh, yeah true crime is is its own thing and it's not my specialty it's not what i aim to um to write one of the reasons i can't rely on true crimes is because most of my plots involve a strong psychic twist and the psychic twist takes them into another level of fantasy. I think that um, it'd be hard to meld that with a true crime story unless unless it was a psychic that got killed or something like that. But I, I like working with the psychic paranormal element. And I think it works in the books because it offers a layer of intimacy between the characters and with the bad guys. Things are operating on multiple levels, not just not just in the material world, but in the non-physical world, the psychic world. Um, and I think that's, that's, those are the plots that I have the most fun with. And those really don't work well with true crime <laughs> stories. But I think, that the, I think the interest in true crime is fascinating in and of itself, that there are so many people who, who are interested in it and that these podcasts have become a way for the amateur sleuth try to find answers. Jen, as I said at the beginning, you've you've sold 35 million books. I'm not sure if you've had, if you know all those 35 million readers, but you know some of them. Is there much of a crossover, do you think, between your kind of fiction and the true crime uh, readers? Or, or do, do yeah. the readers there's, stick to their own thing mostly? No, there's a lot of crossover uh, between anybody who reads romantic suspense and straight up thrillers and the true crime things. There's just, um, yeah, there is a lot of a lot of crossover, but a lot of readers who read romantic suspense um, 
do read across the board. It's it's they're a very well read group as a as a whole. I wonder if all suspense is for better or worse romantic. There's always an element of romance. Can you think of suspense well, without romance? Yeah, I can think of it with not without relationships. There's always going to be relationships. Yeah. Otherwise, it's not a very interesting story. It just humans react to the relationships, not the actual crime. It's the relationships surrounding the crime that make it fascinating to us. Um, my, my classic example is, you know, if you look at the classic movie, The Godfather, nobody really watched it to see how the mafia operates. They watched it because of the dynamics in that family. It was that family dynamic thing that pulled in the audience. And that's true, I think, of any kind of, of crime writing. It's it's the relationships that sell the books. Um, very often, I think, in suspense, what you get are more of the buddy buddy relationships, two, two cops perhaps solving a crime together, and, and their relationship can be the, the strong focus of the story. Um, but in, in romantic suspense, there's, it's a love interest. It's operating on that level. It's interesting you brought up The Godfather. Your books are bestsellers. Do you, when you're writing them, do you think about them being turned into movies or television shows? Yeah, Netflix, if you're listening, I'm here just <laughs> night or day. Just pick up the phone. I'm here. Uh, it would be great. But sadly, Hollywood has never come knocking. I wonder why. I mean, given <laughs> given your success. I um, have wondered the same thing. Let's, let's ask them. That's a good question. That's No, but in all seriousness, um, is it because the, the, the book world, the, the world of romantic suspense novels and the world of Hollywood or, or Netflix, that they're, they're parallel, that they don't really inter, intersect in any way? I don't know. It's a good question. I think there are so many crime dramas on TV that it would, you know, just in general, that's a very popular um, genre in television. We love the crime dramas. But um, not usually emphasizing the romance. It's it's on the crime. You know, the focus is more on the action. And that may be, may be part of the problem with romantic suspense because you've got to give equal, equal share to the romance. And that might be hard for Hollywood to deal with, frankly. Well, let's get to sleep no more. I'm not sure how much you want to give away about the plot you certainly don't want to give away the ending because we want people to read the book but perhaps talk a little bit about it about how long it took you to to write and you've written so many books i mean it's like having children like everyone always claims their latest one is their favorite but how does this one how is it similar and how would you distinguish it from your other books this is going to this is the first book of a trilogy called The Lost Night Files. The Lost Night Files, of course, is the name of the podcast. And it involves three women who checked into a semi-abandoned semi resort with the idea of being offered jobs at the resort. They walk in the lobby and they don't remember anything until the next morning when they wake up in the middle of a California earthquake. And the old hotel is burning down around them. When they manage to escape, they finally realize that during that night of the lost night, the night of total amnesia for them, they somehow acquired psychic powers. So they know that something happened. They're determined to find out what, 
and they fire up the podcast as a mechanism for solving their own cold case. And the way they're going about that is to solve other cold cases that look a lot like theirs or have some similarities that make them think that uh, they can might find answers in those cases that would lead them to the answers they're looking for in their own case. So that's the setup. And Sleep No More is the first book in that trilogy. And it features one of the three women as the heroine, Pallas Dwellen. And she's an interior designer. She was going to do the hotel. That was her big thing. And Ambrose Drake, who is a writer of thrillers, who has also had a similar amnesiac experience, also has gained powers and is looking for answers. And, and the central point of the story is, this is, takes place in a small uh, college town. Everybody kind of knows what a small college town feels like. Is there one in particular, Santa Barbara? I did, I did not name, <laughs> I picked, I invented the Carnelian. Okay, that's, <laughs> having lived in a few small college towns though, it's, it's. Yeah, they're all the same. Yeah, there is a vibe. There is a vibe. If you've been there, you know it. Um, but the focus is the Sleep Institute, the Carnelian Sleep Institute that is operating on the campus there. And our hero checks in because he's having serious sleep problems. He's a serious sleepwalker. And hallucinates and thinks he has seen a murder that night. But the next morning, there's no body and everybody denies anything happened. They tell him he was just dreaming. And that's why he contacts the Lost Night Files podcast team to solve that murder that he thinks he saw. Does that give you enough of the story? Well, it's it's not so much for me, but for our viewers and <laughs> listeners, I want to make sure that they're hooked, but not too hooked. Uh, well, we'll put it this way. We did a show, uh, Jane, with um, a doctor who, who just wrote a book about um, our crisis of, of not sleeping enough. I, I didn't realize there were doctors who focused specifically on that. Did you need to research the whole medicine of, of sleeping and all these institutes for the book? Well, I didn't have to go very far because it turned out somebody I know went through the sleep clinic experience. I just basically interviewed them. Um, but I also spent some time a few years ago talking to a sleep doctor, which is an interesting experience. And I have read about, uh, read about the subject in, in various ways because I have a personal interest in sleep issues. And what strikes you is how little they know, not only about sleep, but dreams. They know even less about dreams all kinds of theories and all kinds of ideas, but nobody really knows what happens when we dream and nobody really knows why we need sleep, how much we need and why we can't sleep at times. It's just a fascinating field. And because there's a lot of unknowns, I got plenty of room for plots. It's interesting that there seemed to be a, a pandemic these days of anxiety. We did a book in, in the same series as the sleep series on how to address anxiety. I wonder if there's a connection between our age of, of anxiety as a kind of epidemic and, and, and this crisis of sleep where people aren't sleeping enough, whether they're connected. And of course, anxiety for you, I guess, I wouldn't say it helps sells books, but it certainly drives plot. <laughs> Absolutely. A lot of my characters have had panic attack experiences. <laughs> 
Do you uh, do you think of this thing uh, in in a generational sense? You've been writing for a while. You've been around for a while, Jane. Uh, do you think uh, the younger generation, um, generation of my daughter's age in their late teens, early twenties, are they particularly prone to anxiety and crisis of sleep, and and perhaps make them ideal readers of your work? <laughs> if they're reading. And not on their phones. I have, yeah, <laughs> exactly. I suspect a lot of sleep problems are actually brought on by all the tech that we are immersed in. Um, it's got to have an impact in influence on us. So I don't know, but um, I think the issues that young people face are probably the universal issues that all young people face, and every older generation worries about it and worries about the younger generation and they usually do okay you know they, they use you have kids no no you have a husband though i i am curious um does he ever call you uh jane or amanda or does he know you as uh jane he, and krentz he knows me as jane <laughs> oh good yeah. uh in all seriousness jane um you write remarkable amount of books you've sold 35 million copies um are you very organized in terms of the writing do you decide in advance i mean the 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 sleep no more just came out on, on january 3rd earlier this week um you had a book came out uh, a, a jane castle book came out in september of last year how long do these books take you from start to finish it takes three to four months for me I think every, well, I know because I've talked to a lot of them, every author has their own natural pace and you can speed it up a little probably, but not very much. You can slow it down, but probably not very much. It's just your natural pace. And I found mine early on in the career and I've stuck with it. It's if I go too long between books, I get itchy, get twitchy. And if I stay too long in a book, I get bored with it. So the pace I have established is the pace that lets me maintain my own interest level and my own excitement. Because as we all know, if the author is not excited about the book, chances are the readers won't find it very exciting either. Is that scoop to nuts, four months? Is that from the idea to the conclusion? Yeah. That's astonishing. And, and how long did, I mean, your, your, your books aren't that long. What are they, about 40 or 50,000 words? No, about 80 or 90. 80 or 90,000. Yeah. So do you have a a, a required uh, number of words you need to, to write a day for that in that four-month window? I try to, yeah. I try to stick to it, um, mostly because if I don't stick to it, I get anxious. You know, there's a certain, a lot, a lot of the energy is that anxiety energy about not losing track of the story, about finding the next good idea. Um, I'm one of those authors who gets, sadly, gets my best ideas after I'm into the story, not before, which would be very useful to have it up front. So I have to be prepared to go back and do a lot of rewriting. And so it's a lot of backing and forthing for me when I'm writing. But when I am writing, I am totally immersed in that book and I live at 24-7. And that's, I can't think of any other book at the, you know, I'm not, doing anything else except focusing. So you're, so you're writing, what, sometimes 12, 14 hours a day? Toward the end, when the th when it's all coming together, if I'm not actually at the computer actually writing, uh, I'm 
polishing up, I'm figuring out where it's going, how the endings, I'm doing the other kinds of work that gets involved in writing, um, making sure the plot comes together, that kind of stuff. Research at the, you know, whatever needs to be done. Um, but I'm always thinking about the book. And are all these books, they're all sold in advance. You're not writing them speculative. No, these days I work under contract, yeah. And does that help or does that more, put more pressure on given that you've already sold the book? Well, it, I mean, you want to make it, but your deadlines, that's gold, you know, so, and I'm goal oriented. I'm one of those people who is, I, I probably work best with a, with a deadline. Um, but do you have the same editor and publisher? You have the same editor and publisher for all your different imprints, for all your different brands. Yeah, I do now. For the past several years, I have. Um, they've been willing to publish me under all three names. And, and and have you ever been in a situation where you send the stuff over and the editor says, no, this doesn't work, you need to rewrite it? Not these days, because I've been doing this a long time. And I usually know when the story is coming together and when it's ready. If I get into a problem along, it's along the way, I feel free to call up my editor because I do have a wonderful editor, Cindy Wong at Berkeley, and I can talk to her about ideas and it just bounce ideas off each other. So in that sense, I, I, I get guidance along the way. So it usually isn't needed at the end because she has a sense of how it's moving forward. And is this the fun bit, Jane? Do you enjoy the uh, the talking about the book? I know you've you've planned some events with readers. You've done some uh, online stuff too. Yeah, it's it's a chance to communicate with the people who read the books. And I've always said that if you if you respond to an author, not just once or twice for shock value, not just because they're different or unusual, but if you go back to an author again and again, and, and a lot of my readers do come back, oh, they'll, they're waiting for the next book. Um, but if they do have that feeling toward you, it's probably because you have a lot in common in terms of core values. Because I think core values of an author are infused in that book, whether the author knows it or not. And I think readers like their values affirmed or reaffirmed. And that's one of the reasons they'll go back to an author again and again. We, I've always said that the, the, the value of genre fiction in our society is that it transmits our culture's core values and virtues. Um, our sense of honor, our sense of what's right and wrong is often shaped to, for us by stories. If you um, think about it, we all know what a hero is supposed to do in the end. When the crunch time comes, we know what a hero is supposed to do and what one looks like. Where do we get that? We get that from our fiction.